You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And we have got the next instalment of Logan's Look. So I did my research because I should have done this and I had several ages in my head to find out how old Logan was. Okay. And it turns out the reason I had several Is ages... Logan's, Logan's one? <laughs> Is he 42? Is he 42? And it's just like... No, he's 29. He's just a few months away from that terrible age of 30. When you get thrust into the carousel. Right. Uh, We're doing the Logan's, Logan's Run thing, aren't yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the reason I had several ages in my head is because Adrian said he was five when he started watching Doctor Who. So he planned to start watching Doctor Who with Logan when Logan was five, but actually started watching Doctor Who with Logan when Logan was six. And that was two years ago. And now Logan's eight. And that's why I had several different ages in my head and couldn't remember which one was which. But Logan is eight. So Adrian writes in, Hi JR, happy Anzac Day. Mm-hmm. Which it must have been on the day he sent the email. Okay. What's Anzac Day? Is that Isn't something Aust- to do... The Australian War Memorial Day. Yeah, something like that. That's what I figured. Hmm. But I wasn't 100% sure and I decided not to look it up because I thought I'd ask you guys... Hmm who would obviously be filled with the knowledge. And so Simon remained silent. And that's <laughs> no, it. I was just thinking it's one of those things you see written in a diary. Yes. But you're never quite sure what it is. No, it's, about, no, it's like Remembrance Day here. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, here is the latest batch of comments from Logan on the first half of season 17. Destiny of the Daleks. This story was good, and I liked Davros coming back. I didn't expect Romana to regenerate, but the new Romana is good. I like her a bit better than the first Romana. Kids would, wouldn't they? Mm. Because the first Romana was sort of bossy and stern, and the second Romana is kind of fun and childlike. Um, It was annoying that you could disable the Movellans by pulling their power packs out of their belts quite easily, despite the fact that they are supposed to be very powerful robots. Why was I so annoying that the Movellans could be disabled by pulling their pants down? (laughs) I just automatically assumed that was what... I'm sure they'd be disabled if you pulled their pants down. Pulled down their leg warmers. But as long as the power packs are attached to the pants, then that would definitely definitely work. Logan's score, Destiny of the Daleks, 8 out of 10. City of Death. This story was not the best. <gasps> I, he's a kid. He's eight. Yeah, no, I, I agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> City of Death when you're eight is not the same story as City of Death when you're 48. Um, I liked all the Mona Lisa paintings in the story. I didn't like Scaroth's green head with the one eye as I thought it looked silly. Score, three out of ten. <laughs> <coughs> The Creature from the Pit. I like this story, but I preferred K9's previous voice. Side note from Father Adrian. 
When K-9, when K-9 first spoke in this story in a TARDIS scene, Logan asked what that noise was. He didn't even realise that it was K-9's voice as it was so different to John Leeson's delivery. Logan carries on. It's a bit weird that the people who needed the communic that the people needed the communicator in order to be able to speak to the creature. Lady Adrasta wasn't very nice throwing lots of people down the pit when they'd just made a single mistake. Score though, six out of ten. And next time we hear from Adrian, we'll have Nightmare of Eden, Horns of Nymon, and presumably the animated Sharder. Oh, a classic run. Of... Yeah, no, I'm quite. I, yeah, but kids, it's different. Yeah, it's when you're eight, Horns of Nymon is not the same as it is when you're 48. No, no. So uh, I'm curious to see what he'll think. Or 40. So. Well, I was making an allusion between ages. With you, were, you, were taking, you were taking our ages and averaging them. Um, by a Modian average, okay, okay. let's say. Child of our time, though, because, I mean, I loved City of Death, but that was all about Scaroth. That was the best thing about it. Yeah, that's the first thing that scared me, that I was two when it was on. Mm. And I remember it. Your parents let you watch Doctor Who at two. I think it might have been an accident. I think it was the, the first and last time I remember watching Doctor Who until, uh, I think, Keeper of Trachan. So I there's was a gap. Three mm. when mm. I started watching Doctor Who. Mm. But then we were a BBC family. Mm. So, although we weren't a strictly BBC family, BBC One was usually on. Mm. And on a Saturday tea time, back in those days, you know, you didn't have the children's channels or anything. So on a Saturday tea time, Doctor Who would just be on. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, three so, would be yeah. the same for me. Planet yeah. Spiders. So yeah. yeah. So you just you you just would watch it. Mm. And then the responsibility, the onus is on the BBC not to put something out at like five o'clock on a Saturday tea time <coughs> that's gonna mess with the kids. And I don't think you know, I I find myself as a parent now agreeing with Mary Whitehouse about certain things mm. because I do think there are occasions when they did overstep the mark. And But having said that, people look at the new series and say they're overstepping the mark all the time. But I'm looking at the new series and thinking, no, this is not overstepping the mark in anything like the kind of ways the old series did but you're just more sensitive to it now. Mm. But if you actually looked through those sensitive eyes at the old series, you'd see that the old series was doing it more, mm. or during certain periods of the old series. But it's all about the environment, isn't it? So if you watch something that's quite, you know... The things that I find that overstep the mark are when a character wraps a telephone cable round somebody's neck and starts yeah, strangling yeah. them, right? So I'm not fussed about the Morbius monster being made of bits of people because the kid's just going to look at that and think it's silly yeah, yeah, as much as it's scary, but they're not going to think it's real. But sticking a telephone cable around somebody's head and starting to strangle them is something that kids, you know, a four-year-old kid, a five-year-old kid could go into nursery or go into primary school or mm, whatever. Mm. And yeah, because toys, of old toy telephone in the nursery, in the little yeah, play area. wrap it around somebody's head and yeah. if the teacher, the um, carers, whatever, haven't got their eye on them, something nasty could happen while their back's turned. Mm. That's the kind of thing, really. And the new series, I think, does that a lot less than the old series I think did. so, yeah. yeah. 
And that's where you've got to be careful. It's some questionable subject matter and discussion stuff, but actually that's stuff that kids probably wouldn't They probably wouldn't pick on it, Mm. pick up on it. No. And if they did pick up on it, then as long as you're in a family environment while you're watching it, you can have a conversation about it. Mm. Mm. So I don't know. I Well, should we actually get on and talk about something else? Okay. Matt, not having kids is... No, well, no I'm, just thinking, I'm just thinking that most kids these days are seeing far worse together. True. Yeah, outside. yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't have access to YouTube or anything screen-related outside of the house. We used to, yeah, yeah. We used to go out into the countryside, and if we found pornography in the hedge, then it was a lucky day. <laughs> Whereas these, yeah, yeah. these days, kids have access to it on the school playing field, like, out with their mates. So... We have no control over the horrors that children are watching at the moment. I was thinking when you talked about the, the Morbius monster, I immediately thought about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. A lot of those creatures in that. Were, so that was all happening in the 90s. Hmm. Do the things that I don't like are the things where there's lots of hitting hmm. rather than necessarily shoot. I'm not fond of a lot of shooting, which is, I think, why I'm a Doctor Who fan rather than a Star Trek fan. Because in Star Trek, there's a lot more shooting and hitting. Whereas mm. in Doctor Who, there's a lot more... There's a lot of people getting hit in the chests. Mm. In Star Trek? Yeah. It always ends up with a fist fight with Kirk, doesn't it? Yeah. Always starts with a lot of shooting of phasers and then ends up with a fist fight with Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the other Star Treks are like, but that no, was all, that's all I remember about the original series. Yeah, yeah pretty Phasers much. and fist fights. Yeah. No, Next Generation onwards, it... There was a bit of it, wasn't there? Because the whole idea was Riker was the replacement. If you were lucky, there was a bit of it. If you were unlucky, there was a lot of sort of philosophical meditation on this, mm, that, the no other. No bad thing. Politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can be. Yeah, thinking back, it was good, but very, very sort of early 90s yeah. kind of sober sort mm. of seriousness. Mm. I like the new Star Trek series. Mm. That had a good balance of of the sort of the seriousness, but also the ridiculous plot twists. Pretty, pretty nasty in places, and slightly nasty in places. Yeah, yeah. But it's pitched as a slightly older, it's very, audience. very good series. It was very good. Where's Doctor Who? Is really about scaring them, yeah, rather than any sort of physical violence. Really, I had to end. Speaking of which, <coughs> the God Complex. Yes. I wasn't. Well, okay. <coughs> So, this week we are up to, in our Series 6 rewatch, The God Complex. So, okay then, let's do what we usually do. Go around the table, say when we last saw it, say what we thought of it. And this time, because I never start, I will. So, the first time I watched it, I enjoyed it a lot. Wasn't totally sure. I think I gave it in my review an 8 out of 10. But later, that week or that month... I'd already revised that upwards because the second watch, I thought it was considerably better. And the most recent time I've seen it was in my great Moffat rewatch in 2012 or whenever it was. So, Simon. Mm. Um, When I first watched it was on transmission, probably the last time I watched it as well. And I remember thinking, yeah, that was interesting. Um, And I'll go into that later, but I think I missed quite a lot really. So I would have given it some like a seven, seven or an eight, eight at most. Okay. Uh, yeah. Matt? Um, I've watched it fairly recently, I think, because I really like I, re- I loved it on transmission. <coughs> I thought it was really atmospheric. Um, I enjoyed it on the rewatch. 
Um, and yeah, I think watched on the rewatch. I didn't do it as part of a grand Moffat rewatch. Mm. I just watched it as an individual episode, and and it really st- stood up for me then. Okay, so stay with you, Matt. And now it's gone down a little bit in my All estimation. Right. I think. Um, well, I've got a before you go any further. Yeah. I'll say it has gone slightly down for me too. But okay. then the last time I watched it, I was thinking this is a ten. Right. So it's gone up from an eight to a ten, and then back yeah, down. Yeah. For me, it hasn't. It hasn't plummeted down into the depths yeah, of no. whatever. I think watching it after watching it after a, a run of Moffat episodes. And watching it after The Girl Who Waited, which has gone up, in my estimations, um, and not as a standalone piece, I found it less smart than I remember. I found the dialogue to be slightly more cringy. I still loved the ideas, but I think I think the way they were they were the way they were expressed on screen, I wasn't really convinced about it. It was just too a, a little bit too stylized. I thought, actually, on that theme, there were a few moments in it where I thought they're overstating things. Yeah. But then I think Doctor Who, especially under Stephen Moffat, one of the big criticisms is that they understate things. Mm. And it's always a big question mark over Stephen Moffat. Why didn't you explain what the hybrid was? Why didn't you explain what this was, what that was, what the other was? And I think over-explaining it in this... Because I think that's what the issue was, that they over-explained a lot of things. Possibly. I didn't... That wasn't my issue. I think... I think, for me, possibly, there was lots of potential. And I can remember... remember watching it the first time, thinking there's lots of potential for it to be really scary. Really kind of creepy in a kind of an unusual way. But it didn't really go But there. I don't think it worked I think, I think the trailer promised a lot in that yeah, respect, wasn't it? I think, the imagery was quite strong. I think, actually, if I was eight or seven... Yeah, it would have scared the willies out of me, Potenti- potentially. But but I'm not eight, so I can I can see how I'm watching bits, thinking they could have pushed that a little further, or they could have filmed that in a different way, or <coughs> twisted that slightly. I think the issue there is that we've got used to it because I remember when we first watched it, or when I first watched it anyway. The direction on it, this is Nick Hurran, same as last week, and he pushed the boundaries in Doctor Who with this on-camera trickery, with the things flashing up on the screen and then the out-of-focus yeah. photography. And the first time you watch it, it's very sort of frightening in that sort of camera-alienating kind of a way. Yeah. And then you become used to it. And mm-hmm. the more you see it, the less that trickery has an effect. So I think it's first-time scary. And then after that, maybe that's why it goes down slightly Possibly. in the and estimation. I I don't. I, I wasn't disappointed by the direction. No, it's not because, a case because of... I think it was well directed. I just didn't think it was. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Watching it, I'm not sure now if I thought it was scary on transmission, and maybe I just really enjoyed it on transmission. But I think, and I think the individual moments of kind of the individual room scares are effective, but because they kind of. Because they're, they're, we're barraged with them. So if it had just been a creepy clown yeah, yeah. and they'd really developed it, that's, that's yes. fine. But then they kind of <coughs> kept on going, or even the gorilla, which is such an unusual scare. <coughs> and it's, it's genuinely a, just kind of weird. It's a bit of a catch-22 yeah. that it's about having scares for everybody. Yeah. So you've got to tear through them. Yeah. But 
So it doesn't. There's no room in the story for them to be developed. And actually, and actually, I that that sort of reduced it for me now. But I don't think it should be a criticism because I don't think it's. I think it's a, as you say, it's an episode about scares. It doesn't have to be correspondingly scary because it's an episode about scares. But actually, it's also about this kind of this kind of minotaur character who wants to die, and it's about. Losing faith, it's got that kind yeah, of curse. Yeah, ultimately, the doctor so, realizes that, doesn't he? And it turns yeah. out not to be about what yeah. he thought it was yeah. about. So it's it's a smart episode, but I just wasn't. I think the dialogue, I think the dialogue just didn't carry me, carry me through to that. Mm. Anyway, Simon. Mm. Well, the, I was going to say the first time the dialogue left me a little bit, especially from some of the guest mm. characters. Yeah, felt a little bit, but actually this time round it, it seemed to hold together a lot more, and it, it had a lot more meat on the bones than I remember, and and it, quite a fan, plan, fan pleasing episode. Mm. Lots of little things in there, mentions of Daleks and nine months. Obviously, <coughs> we we know kind of know what the Doctor saw in his room. Yes. When did we find out? Of course, it was you in the time of the Doctor. There's a, quite a lot later. We found. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. It's right at the end of Time of the Doctor, almost, yeah. isn't it? Remind me, because I forget. It's the crack. I, it's Amy's crack that he sees. Isn't is it? it the crack? Because oh, every was... time I watch oh, it, on. I thought it was the War Doctor. No, I assume no, because no, when he no. said, "Oh, of course it was you," and he talks about it like it's a person. No, it's the crack. Well, yeah, because okay. that's what. Yeah, because they hadn't decided when they made the God Complex what it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, what they actually state what it is in. Yeah, in time of the doctor. Yeah, there's yeah. a flashback to it, and you can yeah. see. Oh, okay. But it's one of those things that always goes by so quick. I always think, commit that to memory. Yes. And I never do. No. And I, and I meant make... to look it up this afternoon. But Doctor forgot. makes more sense. It does make more sense. But not in, the, con- in the, the context of Time of the Doctor. They're rebuilding the significance of the crack. Okay. So I guess when he sees the crack, he sees Time Lords at that, at that stage. But he doesn't realise it's the Time Lords in the God complex because he mm. doesn't know about it. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah in general I thought it was a really strong episode um, I'm not sure it holds up on the whole conclusion as to what the Minotaur was doing and what was going on I don't know why that didn't seem to I'll tell you what doesn't work but it's kind of there for sort of allegory almost is when the Doctor cuts off the food supply there's no reason why the Doctor the, the Minotaur should just keel over and die right yeah. there and then yeah that's a bit silly, mm. but it's kind of allegorical mm. Mm. in that he, the idea is that he is being sustained mm. on a constant diet of this stuff. You cut it off, he dies. Mm. So the episode's not going to wait around for two or three weeks for yeah. him to sort of perish, is it? No. I, I, I tell you what as well is because I um, I watched The Girl Who Waited just to kind of catch up in my own head and kind of seeing those two episodes next to each other, they're almost... I don't know if they're sitting too close to each other in the series as well, because they're both quite... Well, that's possibly why it's gone down, because because the girl who waited has gone up in my estimation. Yeah. And they're both quite stylized episodes. They're both quite interior episodes. See, yeah. When yeah. I first saw them, I preferred the girl who waited, yeah. but only by a margin. And now I prefer the God Complex, <laughs> but again, only by a fraction of a degree. Mm. But mm. they, to me... They are like right next to each other. Mm. They're just like really strong 
yeah. standalone episodes in the middle of a series. Mm. I think, cards on the table, I think the second half of series six is like the strongest half series yeah, anywhere really in the new strong, series run. Yeah, yeah, I was thought I thought that. <clears throat> I mean, we'll get to Closing Time and The Wedding of River Song over the course of the next few weeks. Mm. But I mean, I've seen both of those three or four times and I can't imagine I'm going to come here and say I hate either of them. Yeah. <coughs> so yeah, there's a lot in that. And I really enjoyed the guest performances more, far more than I did first time. I found them a little bit jarring. And I wasn't okay, let's go, let's go through them, shall yeah. we? David Williams. I thought he was great. Mm. Yeah, I like, I like David Williams. I think he played it really well. Yeah. yeah. I think David Walliams could have been a risk if yep. they'd brought him in because he was David Walliams. Mm. But it almost feels like they wrote a part and looked at the part and thought, who could we get to play this? And then looked at David Walliams and thought, well, he'd be perfect. And that's why he fits into it so well. Absolutely. But he plays the sinister side of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really well. Yeah. Because we know David Walliams can do that. They mm. needed somebody who could be timid and stupid. Mm. But who could also be a yeah, bastard? Turn on him. Yeah. Yeah. So, and David Williams, we know, can do all those things. Mm, mm. So to get him in. But he just, he did a really good job. The one disappointing thing was in HD, because this is the first time, obviously, I've watched through all these in HD. The makeup, the joints in the makeup are a bit more obvious than they were in SD. It's great, though, his hair. The hair on that head is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I know, oh, it's good makeup. Yeah. It's just that there are some shots where you can sort of see, you know, the makeup crinkling up on the side of his face or whatever. Mm, mm. Um, but yeah, he was very, very good, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. I think um, I, I picked up on that sort of sinister edge to him as well. That um, made it just a bit more interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was some of the lines about, oh, you know, about them being invaded all the time. Were a bit obvious, maybe. Mm, mm. That's sort of Dr. Saddensy, isn't it? Yeah. But then again, I suppose if you're introducing a, an alien species, not to be the central focus of the episode, but to be a not even the main guest character, like the second main guest character, maybe, then you've got to oversimplify things in mm. order to get it across, haven't you? So, Amara Karan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as Rita. Yes, I made a note of that to make sure I got it right. Again, on first viewing, I wasn't sure. I was thinking to myself, really, Doctor? You really want to take her with you? Really? Um, But actually, she really worked this time. I I thought she worked. I thought they probably set her up as as a a really, as potential companion almost too quickly. Mm. So her first lines of dialogue were her saying something really clever and sort of placating everybody. And I think that that kind of set her, that kind of carried on. But she was really, it was a really likeable performance, mm. I think. And mm. you really feel it when she cops it at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the fact that they they made her religious and there wasn't really, I mean, that's that's one of the... It wasn't a necessity. A necessity. No. They could and have the, done something else. And also the Doctor's reaction and the, the story's reaction to the fact that she, she had this faith. It's quite unusual in the new series. You just don't get that. It's almost like one of the more risky things the series has done. So the the kind of the agnostic or atheist things that the series have done, mm. that's kind of less risky. That's sort of that's that's fine. But to make a character Muslim and and sort of accept it, mm. that's quite that was quite brave. Mm. And obviously they did it because it connected with the 
with the story. And it was very real as well. Mm. When you do do something like that, because, I mean, Russell T. Davis would usually put religion in front of you in order to send it up, or else would use the trappings of religion to send it up. Mm. But I said this a few weeks ago, Stephen Moffat, if he does one thing, he always, he see, it seems to me he tries to balance it by including the opposite perspective elsewhere. Mm. So if he's used a character somewhere where he'll send them up for their religion, like, for instance, in A Good Man Goes to War, one of the things there that's being sent up is religion, maybe. So here, there's a character included where religion is allowed to be something real and true and honest for that person. Hmm. And of course, you know, a huge percentage of the population... Not Muslim, but all religions. A huge percentage of the population would be that character, wouldn't mm. they? Yeah. And it was nice to see, actually, because this is something else that doesn't get spoken about often enough. She's in a position where she has an inquiring scientific mind, yes. but she also maintains her belief. Yeah. And there are lots of doctors and nurses and scientists mm. who have religion and yet still do science, and manage to balance those two things. Yeah. And it, yeah, you're right. It was nice to see that on the screen in the program. on it as a personal choice. Yeah. Mm. And in fact... Or even, ex- not, or even not a personal choice, just a personal fact. Mm. So her personal choice is, is the other thing, the things, the actions she undertakes. But her personal, the personal fact is what she just believes the hotel to be. Um, because it's beyond beyond her sphere of reference, mm. and I think, and so, that's what the other characters do—a similar thing. Yeah, it doesn't really touch on the fact of how they're plucked from their lives, does it? Is that explained? I don't think it is. But Which it like, doesn't have to be, but no, you know, it's just... a bit like Megloss in that. In the book, I think of Megloss. I seem to recall um, Terran Sticks added in a story for where the Earthling came from, but in Megloss on screen, he's just there, isn't he? I always get confused between that and the three doctors. Because there's a similar human in the three doctors. That oh, yeah, no, we see up. Mr. Ollis. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. we see him getting picked up. Yeah. No, but the earthling in Megloss, he's just there. Yeah. But in the book, I'm pretty sure in the book, Terran Sticks adds a prologue where he gets picked up out of his everyday life and then an epilogue where he gets put back. I but, but I also liked the, the randomness of that. So the first character we see is this policewoman. Mm. In a hotel, which is obviously, yeah, it, it goes. The the episode makes an effort to to convince us that this is a normal hotel until the revelation happens. But there's still this sort of kind of incongruity yeah. of these these characters, like a Sontaran and the policewoman and, and the and the Jadoon. Yeah, and yeah, that's quite a nice, yeah, a nice mixture. Um. What else then? The Minotaur, it being possibly related to the Naimon? It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I liked, I liked the design of the Minotaur. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was beautiful. And the way it yeah. was shot as well. The kind of, the, he really goes for it with sort of blurred out of focus shots or concealing it or the shots of the, the kind of hand scraping along the walls of the, the hotel. That's really neat. Mm. Yeah, the horns along the top of the door frames. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of an update of the nine one as well, because there's still there's a maze that's very based in sort of computer science. Yeah, yeah. And here it's a maze that's based in computer science, but computer science these days is so far so virtual that it's just sort of 
But that's kind of what was going on in the horns of Naimon in the first place. Yeah. It sort of predated that. Yeah. So it could it yeah, it in in certain respects it was sort of remaking the horns and, of Naimon. And oddly I was I was it was brought to mind uh, Ready Player One, which is minor spoiler alert. Go on. Well, halfway through, has, has anybody seen Ready Player One? Oh yeah, no, no not I, oh, yeah. it's all right. It reminded me slightly of Ready Player One. Oh, okay, yeah, well, and Tron and things like that, mm. I guess. So yeah. is yeah, if you're going to have a Minotaur, you kind of have to have a maze, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and it makes sense in something like Doctor Who to make it a science fiction maze. Mm, yeah. So it's going to be, well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but if you're going to science fiction up the maze, what are you going to do to a maze to make it science fiction? You're either going to make it so that it readjusts physically or temporarily. Yes. So it was either going to be that they jumped forwards and backwards in time, which would have confused things ridiculously, mm. or else just that the corridors kept reconfiguring. Yes. And that's just so obvious. It just, I suppose it probably turned up in both stories by accident, but it's a nice coincidence. I can see works. sort of, I can see sort of influences here because it's the hotel, the hotel setting. I can see influences from, from The Shining. Mm-hmm. And there's a definite sort of Kubrick, Kubrick <clears throat> sort of, sort of gliding picture, down corridors. Yeah, yeah. But also maybe Doctor Who conventions. There's that kind of because I've never been to a hotel-based Doctor Who convention, but there's a lot of focus on the kind of the carpets. Yeah, and presumably there's a lot of sort of costumed characters wandering down corridors, getting lost. Probably. And, and so there's that there's that sort of element <laughs> that hotels hotels of the size that you would get somewhere like Los Angeles are like mazes. They do have like. If you get on the wrong floor, then you could be doomed. And at a Doctor Who convention, if you get on the wrong floor, you could end up opposite a Minotaur or a Dalek or a Weeping Angel. And so there's possibly, I mean, I can see that sort of influence happening. And no doubt that who's the, the author was Toby writing. Right, so... He wouldn't have been to conventions. Wouldn't he? No, I don't think so. Are you sure? He must have been, because he'd been writing... This isn't his first, his first one, isn't he? Um, no, it wasn't, but I don't, I don't think he would have been to, I don't think he would have been to the kind of conventions you're talking about. Okay. I don't know. Oh, no, maybe then, yeah. If we're talking more of the Los Angeles type. Yeah. Oh, yeah, then maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking more of the, he wouldn't have been to the back in the day type conventions. Oh, no, no. Because I was thinking of the 80s aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, the actual hotel in the God Complex, apart from like, the tape, the um, the audio tape, there wasn't actually that much eightiesness in it. But that's, that's because a lot, a lot of <laughs> hotels are dated, and still so a lot of hotels are actually stuck in the eighties anyway. A bit like, again, a bit like The Shining is sort of, it still works today as it did in nineteen eighty, as it would have done in nineteen fifty. It's a kind of a timeless sort of timeless style. Yeah, to, yeah. I think. Um. What about, say, the boy who sees the girls laughing at him and he's just got over his stutter? I, I preferred him when he went loopy. Yeah. I found him but purposefully annoying Yes, before yeah. he went loopy. But I also found the performance improved. But going back to what you were saying about fans, hmm. there's a little bit of this is the old-type Doctor Who fan. Yeah. The yeah. cliched-type Doctor Who fan. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, and actually, 
as much as it was um, sad when Rita dies, mm. for a character that they've made annoying, I thought it got quite sad when he died as well. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely a moment when the Doctor, the Doctor thinks he's going to rescue everybody, tells the boy, you're not going to die. And then the moment when um, David Walliams' character comes into the room and you know Walliams has sacrificed him because he wants to save himself mm. and everybody knows it and nobody says it, I thought that was quite a touching moment. Yeah. What was the boy's faith? Uh, in conspiracy theories. Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm. Yeah. So speaking yeah. of the faith, this is also in some ways similar to The Curse of Fenric. Yeah. And Toby Warehouse wasn't aware enough of the curse of Fenric to have realised what he'd done. But it does mirror some of the aspects of that. Well, it's the breaking the faith scene mm-hmm. between the Doctor and Amy. But I, very, think, yeah. I think he gets away. I mean, I I was reminded of the curse of, the curse of Fenric, but I was also reminded of, of um, the end of the season five when... Amy brings the Doctor back through memory, so it's yeah. kind of bookending that because it turns out this turns out to be Amy and Rory's last last full time story, and so you've got her. The start of her travels is based on it's based so deeply on belief in the Doctor that she believes he's going to come back when he he visits her as a child, and she spends that time between being a young child and being Amy the strippergram. But believing or obsessing about the Doctor so much that she's developed this kind of semi-religious attachment yeah, yeah. to him that at the end of that season he she manages to miraculously bring him back because the of the power of faith alone. Yeah, mm. and here you've got the Doctor almost slightly too easily breaking her faith. Yeah, it him. was a bit too easy, really. And I think because <laughs> Henrik possibly does that better but, a, but actually I don't know if it's by accident or on purpose because of the fact that it's right next to the girl who waited it does actually become a theme across those two stories yeah yeah. yeah. Not. and I thought despite the fact that I thought it happened perhaps too easily it was very nicely played oh, by both beautiful. of them I mean I watched him. oh god Matt Smith seriously I mean still my favourite Doctor yeah he's, he's I thought he was over egging it at the beginning of this episode I, th- I thought f- f- one of the rare, and I like Matt Smith, but it's one of those rare moments when I just think he's a little bit too manic. And I yeah. think that's one of the things where all of these scary things are happening and he sort of sweeps into... It's a bit like the... the Was it Hyde? Mm. The episode Hyde? When there's a real potential for, for lots of, called of creepy, quiet scares mm. and then Matt Smith comes in. It almost like comes across like a tactic, a though. The, the, yeah, that's how he draws the audience in. It, it is, yeah. I and can see also, that. But, but for me, it just... Because I wanted... But I, also I wanted think, to see the most being brought out of these scares. Yeah, but I think Matt Smith's also doing that to make the scares a bit less... Too much for the kids. Yeah. yeah. You've got to also remember this is being watched by three and four-year-olds. Mm. Yeah. So I think he's balancing but, things there. But it's like you were saying... Possibly before the podcast or during the podcast, I'm not sure. Uh, I um, think it was during. It's about. I don't the, know. The, the <laughs> scare, I think. I think scares are fine so long as they're not, Im- as you say, imitatable violence, and so long as they're not out and out gore. So the clown, the gorilla, 
even the weeping angels they're they're the sort of scares which you can really push with kids because yeah. you know you give them nightmares <laughs> but they're kind of safe night yeah but you don't want to give them too much nightmares. Yeah. i was gonna i was gonna say again not so much a criticism and it may be a choice is that is that thing of less is more the whole mm. jaws shark thing that actually a lot of those images because you saw them in trailers like very quick yeah, they were scarier in the trailer mm. than they were in the program. Yeah, so like when you see the weeping angels, yes, they didn't seem particularly scary. And the fact yeah. they were there in the room with them, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't to the same extent they've had before with the weeping angels. It was like oh, they were, and it almost it was almost it almost spoiled it that they went into the rooms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had to. It was, yeah, was it? Except they kept they kept the minotaur. The Minotaur was genuinely scary because they kept the Minotaur at arm's length mm. and shot it in blurs. 35 minutes or something, didn't they, but really? The, but the shocks in the rooms, they just revealed. Mm. And there were eerie moments, like the, the ventriloquist dolls. They were really good, sort of memorable, memorable yeah. visual sure moments in this. How scary the gorilla is, but yeah. I think the gorilla is an idea. Yeah. Works. Uh, uh, yeah, something in a picture book. Because you don't expect it. Mm. Well, it looks quite <laughs> silly, but I think it looks quite silly to our grown-up eyes, to a kid, mm. a guy in a gorilla costume coming out of a bathroom Yeah, could I be think... quite terrifying. <laughs> I think, I don't know, it's one of, the, it's one of those um, scary weird, <laughs> yeah. rather than <laughs> scary scary. I'd quite like to see the room. There was one of the pictures where, where one of the... the deceased characters his biggest fear was Plymouth yes I was just yes, going to see that I really wanted to see the room <laughs> Plymouth really goes through the mill actually I recently heard a stand up comic saying something about Plymouth I'm not going to comment on Plymouth yeah it's a lovely place okay and as it's we got speak, nice bits and as we speak Plymouth <laughs> yeah. just failed to make the playoffs <laughs> oh dear <laughs> is that in football yes okay so it's uh, not Plymouth day to day is it um, <laughs> what else uh, we should talk about the fact that. Um, well, I tell you what, Rory sees the fire escape. Yes, that was great. Yeah, that was a really lovely. when I first watched that. That was a really great moment. Yeah, that I thought would be followed up on. It never really is, is it? I missed that bit. Uh, Rory <laughs> sees the fire escape and he's desperately trying to tell them. Yeah, he shouts the, to the others about it. Then he turns right. around and it's gone. But but one of them is just having one of their. Um, praising moments mm. and then the minotaur's on its way so they all dash into a room and Rory says it about three or four times mm. before he follows them And but it's but it's not so much that he says it about three or four times but it's that having seen the fire escape I thought the episode was going to investigate what a fire escape must mean yeah, and again, he does it again he, he doesn't actually say he goes doctor doctor and he doesn't actually say I've seen a fire escape and then later on, the doctor says, "You know when you saw a fire escape?" No, I think he did say I saw a fire escape. Does he? I think so. I yeah. Like For me, it wasn't the best Rory episode, and that like, the last scene. He where, had one great moment, but the last scene where he goes into the new house that he's been bequeathed mm. and misses the great scene between the doctor and Amy, and the doctor's gone by the time he came out. That kind of summarizes Rory's role. Through the whole episode, he sort of followed the whole people. series. To be honest, well, I thought last well, no, week, last, he week, had a, last week yeah, he had but, a surprisingly good episode. But prior to that, and and Good Man Goes to War, he had some good moments. He, he as had well. this thing at the start, and yeah. um, but, this, but Rory had, but 
even in A Good Man Goes to War, he's still playing second fiddle to the Doctor. At the start, he's on a mission yeah. for the Doctor, and, and then he's looking after him. He's always and, been the third fiddle. Well, and I don't, I don't think playing second or third fiddle to the Doctor and Amy is a problem, but I think in this one, he's possibly playing second or third fiddle to the other supporting characters. Mm. He doesn't really... Does he get a room? No, he gets a no. He doesn't get a room because he's not playing second, third fiddle. Because yeah. he's the one who doesn't have the faith. Yeah, mm. but then, but then they don't really do very much with that. He just no, they runs do do something with that. Right, that's the reason why the Doctor drops Amy and Rory off at the end. Right, the Doctor, Rory doesn't have a room because he doesn't have faith, and slightly earlier than we discover that, Rory says travelling with you has been great or whatever it was in the past tense right. and the doctor picks him up on it and Rory says what are you talking about it's that's the trigger Rory already knows yes that he doesn't have faith in the doctor to keep Amy safe mm. and Rory doesn't have faith perhaps in Amy to be true not sexually but emotionally to Rory so Rory's Basically, this episode, and this is the bit where it doesn't spell it out, but this episode is the episode that puts Rory between the Doctor and Amy, and he's the thing that splits them up. Because Rory, speaking in the past tense, is already making it clear that subconsciously, psychologically... But I think it does that subtly, but actually, the the way the character's used on screen is kind of keeping him out of the way. Well, it is. In lots of scenes, it's just sort of... Focused on other people. But it's, yes, but, but I it's, don't. Know. Yeah, but that is a great moment. Yeah, and then when I suppose you could say when he gets ignored over the fire escape, mm. that is the second trigger that mm. the that the doctor does pick up on that because he does ask about the fire escape later. Right, and so when it gets to the end of the episode and the doctor's broken Amy's faith as well, and he realizes he's now got two people travelling with him who are both having an issue with having faith in him, that's the trigger to drop them off at the end of the episode. I thought they worked that part through really well. I was just going to say that was, I thought, one of the best things this episode did. Mm. And so when it when I first watched it, as I suspect is true for all of us, we knew they were still going to be in at the end of the series, so nobody was expecting them to get dropped off in this one. Yeah. And I thought that really worked. It was a surprise, but it was one where you were surprised the instant you saw him dropping him off, them off, because as soon as you saw the house, you knew, oh, wow, this is the goodbye scene. But as soon as you clicked and said, oh, wow, this is the goodbye scene, your mind goes back through the rest of the episode and says, yeah, of course it is, because the episode built it to be the goodbye scene. Mm-hmm. And it was all completely logical, for me, anyway, at least. Mm-hmm. I it certainly that. didn't. It certainly didn't feel bolted on at the end, like no, we've had before. It's... No, it felt like, but it, but it didn't. What it didn't do was make the mistake of making the episode really ostentatiously about that. Because there, mm. there have been companions where the companion and the Doctor, and this is more in the classic series really than the new series. Everything's fine. They're going off. They're having an adventure. Every four weeks it completely resets and they go off and have another adventure. Everything's completely fine. And then soon as you start the first episode of the last story they're going to be in, something comes up that you know is going to pay off at the end of the story and be the end of the travelling. And they make it really too obvious. Mm. 
And I thought this did a nice job of not making it obvious, mm, mm. but seeding it so carefully that when it happened, it wasn't a shock. Well, also, I mean, the fact that it's not their last episode, and the, in fact, they're pretty standard companions or conventional companions after this. They're not in next week's, but... But they'd never travel again. No. The way they had been travelling. Yeah. yeah. And that was um, that was the moment where Stephen Moffat does the Sarah Jane Smith thing. It's also where Stephen Moffat shifts because every almost every companion since this, since then. So this is the same as happened with Clara, but almost yeah, yeah. from the beginning, the Doctor sort of leaves her behind occasionally yeah, yeah. to have a life. So it's that sort of the series is almost sort of experimenting with companions having a life. And that's, that's what I'm saying. And that's a way to me. get variety out of your characters as well. You can't just keep on having Billy Piper-esque character. That's what I mean year. by the Sarah Jane Smith thing. When she's in with John Pertwee, she's mm. going off and, yeah. you know, Planet of the Spiders and Robot both starts with her, well, we never see it, but they both start with her at home, mm. getting up, making herself a cup of tea, coming into work, and then finding herself in an adventure with the Doctor. Yeah. So this is going back and revisiting that. The shame of it is that he does it with Clara immediately after he does it for half a series with Rory and Amy. Mm. So it becomes more of a thing. Mm. But but there's no reason necessarily why he shouldn't do that. No. Mm. It just seemed too much with two lots of companions in a row, mm. I guess. Anything else about the God Complex? Or do you want to give it a score? I yeah, it stuck. It stuck out a bit when that comment. There was that comment about God complex. Right. Yeah, that seemed a bit on the nose. Yeah, because it? it was such a clever title anyway. Hmm. But it didn't need that. Mm, yes and no. It didn't. It was a bit on the nose, hmm. but it kind of was. It, it played into that thing that I'm saying about the Doctor realizing that Amy and Rory, he, he's lost his faith in hmm. the Doctor. Or he didn't have any faith, maybe, in the Doctor. And she's about to lose it too. And that line about the God complex was kind of ironic. Yeah. That they should be worshipping him. And here we are by the end of the episode and neither of them are. Mm -hmm. So it kind of played into that. It was part of the storyline about them leaving. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it did. as a line, it did stick out. (laughs) It was the Macbeth moment, wasn't it? Yeah. Anything else, Matt? Or is that... Are we going to give it a score? No, I'm still, I'm, I'm still digesting the episode. Okay, well, we'll talk about it again next week, shall we? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's let's give it a score then. Okay. So, Matt, seeing as you're... I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. You give everything a 7 out Do of I? 10. I'll give it... <laughs> No, I'll give it a 7 out of 10 because it's gone down. It, it used to be sort of a 9. It's gone down, but it's still a really strong episode, I think. I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't drop below a 7 for it. All right, Simon? 8.5. I don't know, half points. Hold oh, is, it, is it worthy of a 9? Is it worthy? I did think it was really good. but It's I, a 9 for me. It went from an 8 to a 10, and now it's back down to a 9. Yeah, it is a strong episode. It is. It's, my my hunch is that it, in time, like Matt says, it may weather less well. But 
But at the moment, yeah, it's a nine. It's a nine at the moment. All right. Okay, I've got a couple of short reviews to do. So one of which is a big finish audio, which is actually a few weeks. I should have done this a couple of weeks ago, but I forgot, But so I'll do it now. Which is a fifth Doctor story called The Heliax Rift, which is starting a new unit continuity. So... Right, this is very strange, okay? You've got the fifth Doctor travelling on his own in Big Finish. Mm. Now, given Big Finish have always been really tight Mm. on we must stick these stories in somewhere in the series where they fit. To the point where they can tell you where they slot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this one obviously doesn't slot anywhere because there's never a point at which the fifth Doctor's travelling by himself. Mm. And there's no explanation for it given. So that, and I mean, for me, mm. that's a good thing because I don't like the fact that they feel the need to f- fit them so tightly into the TV series continuity. Yeah, I think Big Finish should just take the characters and tell stories and bugger the continuity. But that was a slightly odd way to start, having the Fifth Doctor on his own. But they're also introducing a new unit team. Mm. So there's a... He's not a brigadier. He's a... I can't remember what he is. A major or something. But there's a there's a character who is essentially in the brigadier spot. And there's another character who's essentially in the Benton spot. And another one who's basically in the Yates spot or whatever. One of them's a, a, a woman. Um... And the story it tells, it was written by Scott Hancock, who did the um, Dorian Gray series Mm, for Big Finish, that I really liked. I thought Dorian Gray was fantastic. But Scott Hancock, this is going to sound weird, he's a bit too clever for Doctor Who, or a bit too mature for Doctor Who. Mm Mm-hmm. Mature is probably a better word. Because Doctor Who, at its heart, is still B-movie sci-fi, right? Mm. And it has... And Doctor Who kind of has to do the good versus evil thing. Mm. And it kind of... There are certain there are certain things that in order to have that sort of four-episode good versus evil adventure story sort of scary tight structure... There are certain things that stories need to do. But this story kind of turns all those on its head. But in a way that doesn't quite work. And I don't know if maybe it's slightly under-directed as well. For the first episode or so, some of the characters, some of the actors seem to be really... I wouldn't say necessarily struggling with their line readings or struggling with their characters, but... For the first episode or so, every time Peter Davison, who's obviously so familiar with the Fifth Doctor that he just does it with his brain turned off, every time he comes in, well, maybe it's just because tonally the story doesn't fit with the Doctor, but every time he comes in, it's like he's in a completely different story from everybody else. And it really, because it's a slight story, but they've told it across two hours, it takes about hour before you even get started, as it were. Mm. I don't know. It was just... 
it was enjoyable and it was a fascinating listen. And Peter Davison on Big Finish is excellent and he's always worth listening to. And it was curious for the fact that it was setting up this new unit continuity. But by the end of the story, they've set up a sort of pseudo-companion plus a pseudo-brigadier plus a... and this... the other character. And at the end of the story, you completely forget all three of them. There was no charisma about any of the three characters. I don't know, the whole experience was just odd. And given how much I like Scott Hancock's other stuff, because mm. he's done other adaptations as well for Big Finish, it just felt like he was the wrong writer for the wrong series, as it were. Because it wasn't a case of good versus evil. It was like a mature story in Doctor Who, but with everybody running around pretending it's a Doctor Who versus the Aliens story. It was just so odd. Anyway, the other thing I've got to review is the latest Ardman film, which is Early Man, which is just coming out on Blu-ray soon. Mm-hmm. And so I had a review copy of that. Everybody here know, like, Ardman oh, stuff. I've been yeah? years. I've got most of their stuff. Have you? I loved Sean the Sheep. Yeah. Chicken Run and the full yeah, length. Yeah, Chicken Run was a bit of a... I was, yeah, one. very agnostic about that. Mm. I think Chicken Run was the, the one film that they got slightly taken over by Hollywood for. And yes, then they, they retreated got... back from mm. Hollywood after that. Well, no, actually, they did five films in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. But With I, varying but degrees think, of... Um, I think Hollywood's control loosened over them. No, because you probably don't know the second and third films where Hollywood were, Hollywood were just as much in control because oh, yeah. they weren't the stop motion. They were okay. standard animation and most people don't associate them with the Ardman. Okay. But actually there was a three-picture deal with Columbia, I think right. it was, which was the one you're talking about. Yeah. And then after that, because Columbia dissolved that when the third film didn't do very well. And then they went with um, Amblin, right. I think it was, for a couple of films. And that didn't work out either. And that's when they came home. Okay. So, actually, the Hollywood thing was actually five films. Right. It's just that most people don't realise because a couple of those films were not very Ardman-y. Mm. So, but yeah, Chicken Run, they did get pushed around a fair bit, I think. But I, I didn't think Chicken Run sustained the idea for feature length either. No, I don't think so either. It was their first feature length, mm. and I just don't think they sustained the idea. Whereas Shaun the Sheep did. Mm. And Pirates as well. Pirates and Adventure with... Scientists. Yeah, that was the middle film in the it's Columbia. A really good film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and curse the weir of it yeah. as well. Yeah. See, I'm. I like that less than the shorts. Mm. I think Wallace and Gromit are better in shorts. Yeah. Anyway, early man or trousers. Or trousers. Yeah, <laughs> you got there before I did. Yeah. <clears throat> well, as long as it's <laughs> not the wrong ones. Yeah. <laughs> early man. It's such a weird sort of idea for a film. It's they they do what they do. So all the jokes and all the characters and all the animation and the sort of beautiful models and sets and scenery and stuff is all in place. It's about a bunch of cavemen and asteroid or something lands on their village or just outside their village, which turns into a football. 
So they invent football as cavemen, but it's made this huge crater. So generations later, these cavemen are still living in the crater when the rest of the world has moved on to the Bronze Age. Okay. But the Bronze Age people are mining for bronze and various other metals. So they find the crater and they think, wow, it's going to be loads of metal in here. So they basically enslave the cavemen <clears throat> and the cavemen challenge them to a game of football over who gets to keep the valley. Okay. So the whole film is really about football. Although there's not actually a huge amount of football in it because as you can imagine with plasticine, football's not the easiest thing to animate. Actually, the football scenes that there are are very well done. Mm. But what a strange mixture of ideas. You know what I'm always saying about the subplots and the character stuff and mm. the allusions and everything have to come out of the central idea. Mm. This is almost like they had all these ideas that had nothing to do with each other and tried to make a film to fit them all in. Mm. Mm. So th- you think about a company like Pixar, where they've got you know head of story. Story is mm. kind of the heart mm. of every production, isn't it? And I find it fascinating that you can have a process like animation that is so labour-intensive, but it can all be done with hundreds, if not thousands of people working on this product with a core idea that is incredibly flawed. But having said that, it happens with Pixar, doesn't it? Some of the Cars films are dreadful. No, the Cars films are great. Oh, two is awful. Oh, no. No? No. Me and the kids came out of that film at the cinema and said, well, that wasn't very good, wasn't it? Did you have you not watched it since? No, because it was true. Oh, do oh okay. I'll give it another go. Yeah, give it another go. And I've not watched three because of that. Two might have been a case of it not being what you expected it to be. Yeah, but actually, I really enjoyed. I mean, it. I like the first Cars, but then I found it tricky to latch onto the whole idea of Cars being something that you get attached to anyway. If you see what I mean? Yeah, I don't. I for years I wouldn't watch the Cars film because mm. I felt the same way. And then I saw the first one. The first one thought, is lovely. Yeah, and then yeah. I thought, oh, actually, I've been missing out here. And the third one, I think, is the best one, actually. Okay. A lot of people disagree, and I'll tell you why a lot of people disagree. <laughs> For the same reason a lot of people don't like the fact that Doctor Who's going to be a woman. The third Cars film, he gets replaced by a female car, and she's the one who goes on to be the hero by the end of the film. She's the one who wins the race at the end of I the film. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And there was, uh, you go on, um, I don't know where, IMDb Mm. or the reviews in IMDb, and there's people absolutely wailing about the fact that there's a girl car at the end of it instead of... (laughs) Dear, oh dear, oh dear. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? What kind of an example is this to put before children that girls can be the same as boys? (laughs) Just unbelievable stuff. What? Yeah. But anyway, early man is beautifully done, but it just doesn't have the coherency. And because it doesn't have the coherency, the ideas don't land. So if you like Aardman, you will like early man Mm. because it's plentifully entertaining. But you will also probably come out of it feeling slightly underwhelmed because it just doesn't quite fit together the way, you, you know, their better movies do. It was quite nice if you're ever in Bristol is um the uh what was called at Bristol 
it's now called We the Curious, which is the Bristol Science Museum. Mm. It's oh, like yeah, an interactive yeah. thing, but they've got a whole animation section and they've got a lot. What's really nice is they've got the Wilson Gromit models there oh, in really, places. Yeah. Just to see them is just mm. awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just lovely. You know, going back to what you were saying about having a head of story at Pixar, mm. that's what this could really have done with. Because you can just imagine that there's maybe two or three guys in there throwing ideas around and they're all getting enthused about it. But there's not somebody above them who's mm. there saying, well, hang on, guys. Are you just getting a bit overexcited about it? I mean, it stories that have got wacky ideas that don't seem to make any sense are fantastic, but you've got to kind of... You've got to tailor the rest of the film to the idea. Yeah, yeah. And this doesn't really quite do that. And it's also very, very slight. It's 75 minutes with 12 minutes of credits at the end. Who who are the um, voice actors? Um, Eddie Redmayne's the lead. Is Tom Hiddleston in it? Yeah, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston is great. He plays the Bronze Age King, but because it's a football thing, they've kind of modelled the Bronze Age team on mm. France. Sorry, is it, are the Romans involved as well? No, just Bronze Age. It doesn't specify. Oh, okay. But they, they've kind of modelled them on France, so they're all playing it with the most outrageously absurd French accents, and Tom Hiddleston is absolutely hilarious. The um, the Ardman films are probably the only films that can get away with that. Yeah. Kind of... I was thinking while I was yeah. watching it, whoa, this is borderline racist. Yeah. <laughs> But it does get away with it because it is just so... It's so ridiculously over the top that you've got to take it in good spirit. And it is hilarious. Um, Maisie Williams, who played Shilda, Mm. plays the female lead. Okay. She's barely in it, though, really. Okay. Uh, No, she's good. Oh, good. Eddie Redmayne's fantastic Mm. for what he's doing. Somebody put Tom Hiddleston into Room 101 the other day, didn't they? Really? Yeah. Why I'm talking the guy that? who plays Loki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This person, I can't remember who it was. Some comedian absolutely hates him. Ooh. Why? That's, that sounds like maybe it's a personal behind the scenes. Who thing. knows? No, it's something to do with the fact that he. I don't know. Is maybe he'd audition. Is there for anything Loki? that Tom Hiddleston can't do? It was okay. that kind of okay. level of. It's fair I don't. Tom Hiddleston's not been around long enough or done a, for a big enough variety of things. No. He's not Hardly have... James Corden, is he? No, I mean he's good. I don't think actually the one Avengers film that I saw him in, I didn't think he was spectacularly good as Loki. But you know, when I've seen him elsewhere, he's a great actor. Mm. Mm. I don't know how odd. Then you've got lots of people like Rob Brydon, and who's the one who does the monkey adverts for PG Tips? Johnny Vegas. Johnny Vegas. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Vegas has got a small part. He's only got about three or four lines, I think. Um, oh God, who plays the um, elder in The Caveman is, oh, the name escapes me. Look at he's really good. He's, apart from Tom Hiddleston, I think he's probably the best thing in it. Oh God, name escapes me. There's two other, Miriam Margulies plays the um, queen of the um, Bronze Age people. Mm. She comes in basically for a cameo at the end of the film, but she's good. It's interesting talking about animation again. Um, I was listening to, I was catching up on Adam Buxton's podcast, and it's a really good one with Wes Anderson, where he talks about oh, the process. Yeah. And I was chuffed to find out that um, Fantastic Mr. Fox was made in Bromley, down the road from where I was born. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, um, but he was talking about the process with Isle of Dogs, in as much as that he was in Paris, but I think it was being made in London or somewhere else. 
and it was all being done remotely. He just had it all set up on his computer to uh, to have a camera in the studio as they were filming. So the animation process was completely separate to where he, he was. was. Bizarre. It is odd. So you see the disconnection. Yeah, I love dogs. Yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 well and truly. You've seen it? No. Anybody? No. Desperately want to. I'm hearing weird things about it. Yeah. I'm hearing that he's uh, probably done an early man on it, maybe, and that it's a bit of a mess. I don't know. The criticisms I'd heard was, funny enough, like a racial thing, as far yeah. as uh, the... Japanese. The Japanese side yeah, of it, yeah. yeah. But he's, he had a, an advisor, somebody there specifically, to make sure that he was on the money with it. It's a fairly stylized version of Japan. Japan. Yeah. But... Um, but then it would be, because it's an animation. Yeah. Yeah, plus, well, let's face it. This is something I heard as well somewhere else the other day about cultural appropriation and this kind of stuff. Mm. Should people, should Isle of Dogs be set in Japan? But then... The whole idea came from when they were filming in Bromley because he was spending time around London and he heard about this place called the Isle of Dogs and from that, the whole idea came out of that. But I mean, isn't on Japanese Gohira if you want to try and pronounce it that way badly. Movies also set in places like New York. Um, the, the originals? Well, the, the Japanese Godzilla movies, they're, they're not, not they're, all set just in Japan. In Tokyo. They're normally set in Japan, are they? Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot of cultural appropriation in pop culture in Japan well, where mm. they take Western stuff. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like it's not going both ways, is the no, other point no, I'm no, making. Absolutely. No, there's always, there's so, always crossovers. So if they're stealing pop culture styles oh, yeah, from the West, there's no reason for us not to steal no. stuff back. Well, yeah, Blade Runner and, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's just, uh, especially in the days of the internet, it's just global culture, isn't it? Mm. Mm. It just seems like an odd sort of thing to moan about. I, I suspect it probably doesn't apply to either dogs. But it's probably more sensitive than other in other areas. So Native, Native sure. American cultural appropriation is well, probably yeah. more sensitive, or like African. Oh yes, but the yeah. the one that I saw that I'm referring to was yeah. specifically talking about Japan. Yeah, which just seemed like an odd. Yeah, no. If there are I other think, underlying issues. Yeah, I think the issues probably are probably when. There's an element of colonisation involved in the past, or well, yeah. even an element of slavery involved in the past. And Japan, I'm not, I'm actually not that hot on Japanese history. I suppose World War Two. Well, America dropped two nuclear yeah, bombs on them. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's there's that. But I don't think that ties into the sort of borrowing of culture because. Surely borrowing of culture is flattering to the people you're borrowing from, isn't it? It depends how sacred that culture is or how part, how integral that culture is to a particular races or a particular nationality's oh, well, identity. So, so if, if, for instance, um, people in Plymouth start running around as Native Americans, they might think that that's that's recalling sort of westerns from the 1950s but if you're native american then a lot of the, the sort of symbols that they're using could be you know have yeah, much, much, much more, about much more religious weight we've, we've had a brush with that with uh, max chiefs yeah we? yeah exactly have we have 
Because yeah. of the Chiefs thing. Because of the logo, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's a headdress. And I don't know enough it? about it, but but I can imagine that if the headdress has greater significance to a Native American beyond just a, a hat, mm. then it could be then it could be slightly insulting. I don't know. Depends how you do it. Well, I, yeah. If you're not doing it as an insult. I mean, there are other things, like if there's a religion that specifically says you will not depict our icon, mm. then you don't depict that icon because in doing so, you are insulting the whole religion. Mm. So you don't do things that will deliberately insult people. So I guess you pick... I don't know, maybe we're talking about stuff we don't know yeah, about. Yeah, I think that's probably so <laughs> straying into... Yeah. <laughs> okay, next week then, we are going to be... Oh, well, in between... Well, depends when these episodes go out, but in between now and next week will be the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey opening in England. Mm. So next week we are going to talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey and Stanley Kubrick in general, I guess, probably. Mm. Seeing as I think that's a subject that all of us would be quite keen to have a chat about, maybe. Give it a go. Mm. All right, so next week, 2001, and then we'll be back the week after with closing time. Speaking of James Corden, and that's if Elton and Paul Ebbs don't get their fingers back into the podcast in the meantime. <laughs> oh, I haven't listened to that one yet. Don't listen to it. <laughs> Is it specifically me? Who no, it's specifically avoid... you that has to avoid listening to it. Specifically me? Yes. Well, obviously now I'm going to listen to it. Yeah, but we already told <laughs> is this Is if I listen to it, am I likely to go on a massive um, blocking on Facebook? No. As some sort of some no. sort of peak that I see people are on? No. Oh, okay, that's fine then. I you might need counselling. Well, you know, I've been there, done that. All right. Until then... <laughs> that's a bit personal. I was Simon. I was Matt, I was JR, and we'll speak again soon.